morning, we acknowledge Your greatness. Lord, the only, re- the only way that we can believe that You are great, that You are worthy of our praise, that You're worthy of our lives, is for our spiritual blindness to be taken away so that we can see You for who You truly are. God, lost in our sin, trusting in the things of this world to satisfy, loving the things that You've made more than You. God, our natural tendency as fallen sinners is, Lord, to be unmoved when we consider who You are, when we hear in Your Word or sing through song about Your greatness. We're unmoved because so often we're more impressed with temporary things that we can see with our eyes, temporary things that we trust in to satisfy. But God, my prayer this morning is that You will help us to open our eyes, to see You, to see Your character put on display so that we can rightly know You and rightly know why we are here. God, my prayer this morning is that You and Your Spirit will take Your Word and will apply it into our lives. God, we know that Your Spirit alone can change hearts. We know that Your Word alone has the power within it to recall Your wandering children back to You. And my prayer is is that You will do just that this morning. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would be seated, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. We've been walking through the book of Exodus this year together. And what we've seen week after week is how God saves His people Israel. And then how He sustains them in the wilderness. And then He brings them to Mount Sinai and He gives them laws to obey. He enters into a covenant with this people And He tells them that He is to be their King and they are to follow Him because He has saved and redeemed their lives. We're familiar with the beginning of this covenant, the Ten Commandments. Even if you're not in and around church regularly, you've probably at least heard of these Ten Commands. And after the Ten Commands, we enter this section in Exodus 20-23, through known as the Book of the Covenant, the Book of the Law. And in this section, God gives specific instructions to Israel to govern their life together, to show them how they are to be different from the nations around them. Now, we're honest, we've talked about this the last few weeks, many of the laws in Exodus 21-23, through do not seem relevant to our lives today in 2019. Many of them we're not even called to practice anymore, and yet we believe that because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that we're not supposed to skip stuff. We're not supposed to pick and choose parts of the Bible that we like and that are easy to understand. Instead, if this whole Christianity thing is real, if it's worth us giving our lives to, if it's worth us building our lives upon it as a foundation, then we've got to think hard and make sense of what all of the Bible tells us even obscure passages written thousands of years ago to an ancient people. So, 
The book of the law is that in many ways. And what we've seen is that even though the specific laws no longer apply to us in the same way, as we read them, we can see who God is, the God who gave these laws. We can see His character. We can see His heart because our God never changes no matter what time in history we find ourselves in. So we've seen rules in the last few weeks about altars and how to construct an altar and what the altar's for. And what those rules and laws remind us is that God is holy. And He is making a way for fallen sinners to dwell in His presence through offering sacrifices. Even last week we saw these slave laws that were given to Israel. And we pointed out how these laws that don't really make sense on the surface to us point us to the reality that our God is a redeemer. Our God is a protector. Our God, even at times in history, will put restrictions on certain practices without condoning them in order to keep Israel from being as bad as they could be. Now, if you hear me say slavery, and then you immediately think, if this joker is going to try to claim that slavery is okay, and and you're you're tempted right now to just tune out, then I want to encourage you to just just for a minute, I'm going to summarize what I said last week, go on to our church podcast and listen to last week's sermon, because for 50 minutes I explained the differences between the type of slavery that we think of naturally and the type that's being talked about and legislated here. We saw last week that the form of slavery that God legislates in Israel is totally different from what we think of when we hear that word. It was not based on race, and it was not permanent. Instead, it was a voluntary, temporary practice that would help people who were in hardship to get on their feet and start a new life. It was a fair and beneficial practice for both servants and masters. And it was often even attractive enough that a servant would choose to make his master part of his family and would choose to follow and serve him forever instead of pursuing freedom. So it's it's totally different. We looked last week at how this even points us forward to the gospel of Jesus who willingly takes on the form of a servant and a slave in humility to save us from our sin and He who is the perfect master. So we, we talked about all that last week. All of that dealt with men servants in particular. Men who would voluntarily enter into a period of service for six years to improve their lot in life. This morning... The next obscure passage is Exodus 21, 7 through 11, that transitions and talks about maidservants or women who would go into this form of servitude. So I want to read these verses together 21, 7 through 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out. As the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He, the master, shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. 
If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. You know what most pastors and churches do with the book of the law? They do one sermon for about 30 to 40 minutes that covers chapters 21 through 23, and they highlight a few specific laws, and they say, not everything here is applicable to us today, and it's hard to understand, but Jesus fulfills them all. Hallelujah, let's sing. Why? Because there's tough stuff to make sense of in the Bible. And this is talking about selling a daughter into slavery, and then it seems to even be endorsing and giving rules for the practice of polygamy, being married to multiple women, and it's in our Bible. And the world who doesn't believe the Bible knows that it's in our Bible. And they're going to say to you, oh, you're a Christian, you believe the Bible. You're going to tell me how to live in this way, in this way, in this way. Well, what about this in the Old Testament? What about this in Exodus 21 or in Leviticus? And we've got to know how to answer that question. So we're not going to skip stuff. We're going to try to make sense of these things. So I'll, in, in, in attempting to make sense of what's going on here and to show you how it is relevant to your life today in 2019, I want to point your attention to four truths to take away. Number one, to, to make sense of this passage, we have to understand the normalcy of arranged marriages. The normalcy of arranged marriages. Now, if you, like me, have grown up with a steady diet of Disney movies and romantic comedies in your life, then the idea of arranged marriages seems backward and terrible and cold and calculated and unfeeling. The idea of an arranged marriage seems to destroy the magic and the emotions of falling in love. But a quick perusal of history will tell you that marriages that were founded primarily on romance is a very recent development in human history. It originated with the the medieval idea of chivalry. So back in the 11th and 12th centuries, the most romantic of tales that we have ever uh, read or, or that first started to come out, they were about falling in love, but that falling in love was not to a spouse. It was about falling in love with someone else. Because marriage and love, were that wasn't the reason you married. Marriage was for something totally different. And then if you fast forward through history to the late 18th century, this idea that love is the main reason to get married began to spread. Why? Because Enlightenment thinkers began to produce the idea that what life is about is being happy. Life is not about traditions. Life is not about duty. Life is not about survival. It's about finding happiness, the pursuit of happiness. And as that idea was introduced into the the mind and the worldview of 
humans, what happened is, is the idea that marrying should be for love began to come. They started to say, you're not supposed to just marry to get wealthy. Don't be a gold digger, right? You're not just supposed to marry to improve your status in the community you live in. It's not just about being able to start a family or having security or safety or protection. Instead, it's about how you feel. It's about romance. It's about love. Now that thinking is all we've ever known. But throughout history, marriage was far too serious a matter to be based on a fragile and fickle emotion like love. (laughs) Uh, Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't like where this is going, right? I like romantic comedies. I like Nicholas Sparks novels and all of those things. Um, This is fat history, right? History, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that throughout human history that spouses did not love one another and develop affection for one another. They obviously did very often, but that wasn't the main reason they got married. The main reason you got married was to improve your lot in life, to improve your status in life, and to provide security and a future for yourself. That's what was going on. So with that in mind, enter the ancient Israelite world where God is giving His people Israel rules about servants and slaves and how it differs between men and women. Verses 1 through 6, which we covered last week, dealt with male servants and and, and I've already kind of mentioned the differences between that and what we affiliate with the idea of slavery. These verses this morning, 7 through 11, deal with female servanthood. So how does it start? Verse 7, when a man sells His daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male servants do. What's the immediate question we ask when we hear that? Why in the world would a father who loves his daughter sell her into slavery? Why is God not just saying, don't do that, right? But instead saying, when this happens, this is what the rules are. The answer has to do with arranged marriages. In the ancient world, an unmarried woman was vulnerable. She could easily be taken advantage of. So it was important for her to be married because that marriage covenant would ensure for her protection and security and a family and a future. And in order for a young woman to get married, the groom's family in ancient Israel needed to pay a dowry which was a financial gift that was paid to the family of the bride. Why? Why did they have to give this financial gift to the family of the bride? Because when the bride gets married, she leaves her family and she now becomes a part of this new family unit. And when she leaves, it's going to weaken the family unit that she was raised up in. They would be losing someone who was proficient in family and household duties. They would be losing someone who would be able to produce children for their family's future well-being. Meanwhile, while the bride's family was losing someone and all the value that they added to the family unit, the groom's family was what? They were adding all of those virtues 
by joining that family unit. So that's why there was a financial gift or a bride price that was required. It was to provide stability to the family that was losing someone by gaining someone else. That's the idea. Now, that has been modified throughout history and means something different today and is practiced in different places in the world today, but that's what's going on in ancient Israel. So in Israel, if a a family is struggling financially and they have a daughter who is of marriageable age, they could accept a dowry or a bride price and for her to go into another family that has better economic prospects. And if they did that, it would not only be protecting her and providing for her future as someone who is an unmarried woman was going to be very vulnerable in this day, but also it would help their family due to the bride price that they would receive to survive as a family unit and move into the future. So when it says here that a father is selling his daughter into slavery, this is really an attempt at an arranged marriage that would both benefit her and her future as well as her family. So to make sense of this, to begin the process, we've got to understand the normalcy of arranged marriages in that culture. It's very different from how we do things today. It's foreign, and when it's foreign to our worldview, we get scared of it and just choose not to think hard about it. But that's what's going on. But there's more that we can see in these verses that are relevant to our lives. The second truth we need to understand is this. God's law ensures protection for the vulnerable. God's law ensures protection for the vulnerable. We saw last week that male servants would volunteer to do contract labor for six years in order to improve their lot in life. We talked about how the reason this would often happen is because when young men were irresponsible, when they did not work, when they did not know how to take care of a family, when they were mooching off of their family and other people, when those things were happening, this was a way to keep them from living their lives in perpetual poverty. They could commit themselves and volunteer into this form of service. They could learn a trade. They could learn how to live life and be in a stable family for a period so that then after six years they would be free to go and start their own family equipped with those things. That's what's going on there. But female servants would serve this new family Not for a period of six years so that they would be ready to start their own family. Female servants would serve this new family with the hopes of marrying either the master or one of his sons. If they were were married, verse 9 tells us that they would officially be recognized as part of the family. They would be treated as a daughter, no longer as a servant. But if time passes after this master has purchased and paid this bride price to bring this young woman into their family, if time passes and the master decides that marrying this servant or having one of his sons marry her is not the best option, then God demands that the master allow her family to redeem her, to buy her back so that she would be free again and they could pursue better prospects elsewhere. 
That means that masters were not allowed to permanently keep this young woman as a servant without marrying her into the family. They weren't allowed to keep her in a state of perpetual servanthood. They weren't even allowed to sell her into another family, especially a foreign family that worshipped different gods and had different faith and didn't have the same values that the Israelites had. The master had to keep good faith on the bridal agreement he had made or he had to allow her to go back to the protection of her family. Now what does this do? It's protecting the young, vulnerable maidservant from being abused by the system or being abused by a master. Very different from what was happening in the other peoples in the ancient Near East and how this was practiced. Then God says in verse 10, If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he doesn't provide those three things, then she is free to go back to her family without them having to redeem her and buy her back. Now this verse can get tricky. It can get tricky because in our English translations... The third in that list of three, that phrase says marital rights. Most commentators today, commentators are people that write books about the Bible. Most commentators assume that this phrase marital rights refers to conjugal rights, to sexual intimacy. And in the Bible... God's standard for sexual intimacy is that it only happens within the context of marriage. So the situation being described here is that this maidservant was purchased and bought into the family and then was married to the master's son, but the master's son decides later that he wants to get another wife. And then he's told by God that you've got to still take care of your first wife instead of neglecting her. That's that's the situation. If that's what's going on, then what's the implication? Then that means that God here is controlling instead of forbidding the practice of polygamy, being married to multiple women at the same time. Now I mentioned this is difficult to interpret because of that phrase... Marital rights. And I don't want to get off in the weeds here, but it's important for us to notice that words matter. Phrases matter. If we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, then then a word has significance. The Hebrew word for marital rights is honah. And it's only used in all the Hebrew Old Testament here. And its meaning is debatable. Most commentators think it refers to marital rights conjugal rights, and therefore that means that he's talking about a situation of polygamy here. But some commentators argue that instead of it referring to marital rights and sexual intimacy, it instead refers to providing shelter for this maidservant. Now, if that's what's going on, if that's what that word means then it means that the situation being described is that this young woman has not been chosen to marry the master's son, and he's chosen to marry someone else, but the master still is required to provide her with food, clothing, and shelter, ensuring her protection and making sure that she's not vulnerable. So if that's what the word means, 
then God isn't controlling polygamy here. Okay, so if you've zoned out, just zone back in for just a minute. Because I know we're in the weeds here, right? Because words matter. But we have to understand the situation and understand what the text is saying because it affects who God is and what He's legislating and it affects the character of God. So it matters. So, so these are our options. God is either saying, protect and provide for the young, vulnerable woman who you chose not to marry, or He's saying, protect and provide for your first wife and do not neglect to care for her even if you've chosen to get married again. So either way, God's care for the young woman who easily in this society could be neglected and abused and taken advantage of is clear because the heart of our gracious God is to show mercy and protection to the downtrodden and humble. His heart has always been that and it still is today. So even if we can't with 100% confidence know which of those situations is being described here, What we can know that is 100% clear is that the goodness of God is being put on display by controlling these arranged marriages and protecting these maidservants from dangerous abuses where women would often be neglected and ignored and harmed. We know that God is protecting the vulnerable even if we don't know if He is controlling and legislating the practice of polygamy here or not. So, I personally don't think God's endorsing polygamy here because I know that that's not part of His design from the beginning. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. And even if that's not what these verses are saying, go read your Old Testament. What do you see all over the place? Polygamy. It's practiced. It might not be commanded by God. It might not even be legislated by God. But it is being practiced, not just by any old Israelite, but by many Israelites who are used by God in powerful ways. So, so third point we've got to make sense of. Polygamy was practiced, but destructive. Polygamy being married to multiple people at the same time, was practiced in the Bible, but it was always destructive. We've got to think through if Israel is called to be God's people, and they're supposed to be different than the nations around them, and yet they're habitually and regularly practicing sin, then... Does that harm God's character and reputation? Does that point out God's inability to save and transform people? We've got to think through and answer that question. So what I want to do is first, I want to explain how God is still good and trustworthy and holy, even if He were to control and legislate polygamy even though I don't think He does, even if He did, how He still can be a good and holy and faithful God. And then I want to show you what God's design for marriage was, which was not polygamy. So flip over in your New Testament to Matthew chapter 19. Flip to the right to the New Testament. Matthew 19, I want to read a section of Jesus' interaction with some Pharisees to give us assistance in making sense of this dilemma. Matthew 19, I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. 
The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them made, from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So, Jesus says, They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 7, the Pharisees said to Jesus, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What's going on? The Pharisees want to trap Jesus. They don't like who he is. They don't like what he's doing, what he's teaching, what he's about. He's a threat. So they're trying to trip him up. So what do they ask him? Can we get divorced? We're good Jewish people who love God and love His law. Can I get a divorce? What's Jesus say? He points them back to Genesis. He says God's original design in Adam and Eve was for them to come together. And then Jesus says, what God joined together, let not man separate. What that means is, no, you can't get a divorce. That's what Jesus says to them. So what do they do? He's falling for their trap, they think. So then they say, well, Jesus, we understand what you're saying, but if God tells us that we're not allowed to get a divorce, then why in the Old Testament, in the law, did Moses tell us that we were allowed to get a divorce? Why did he not forbid it? Why did he explain and legislate it for us? And Jesus' response is, it's because you have hard hearts. Because the people of Israel have always had hard hearts. And because of that, God instructed Moses to allow them to divorce their wives. But he says, from the beginning, that wasn't so. And so Jesus says to them, therefore, don't get divorced except for sexual immorality. So Jesus, remember, we believe Jesus is the divine Son of God. We believe that Jesus is the ultimate interpreter of the text. He is the one who teaches with the most authority. He brings out the truth within it. Jesus, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the authoritative interpreter of God's Word. This is Jesus who loves God's law with all his heart, who affirms the Old Testament, who obeys the Old Testament. And what he says here is this. He says there's times in the Old Testament where God gave Israel laws to control their sinful actions in order to keep them from being as sinful as they could be. There are times where instead of outright forbidding something, which is what God's standard is, He instead chooses to control it and legislate it even though His standard is much higher and His design is much different. These Pharisees, they're asking here about divorce, not the issue of polygamy. Why? Because at this point in Jewish history, polygamy was no longer practiced among the Jews, but divorce was. It wasn't relevant, so they weren't asking about it. But if they would have asked Jesus here in Matthew 19, Jesus, 
Are we allowed to have multiple wives? I believe Jesus would have said in a very similar vein, listen, God put controls on the sinful action of polygamy in the Old Covenant because of your hardness of heart and to restrain you from being as sinful as you could be. But this was not His original design from the beginning. So here's the conclusion. This is why I go to Matthew 19 and try to make sense of all that. Even if Exodus 21 verse 10 is about marital rights and it refers to a man being married to multiple women at the same time, and even if God is legislating that here, God is still not condoning it. He is still not saying this is okay. He is merely controlling it because of mankind's sinfulness. The exact same thing that He does with the issue of divorce. So just like the divorce issue... Jesus says God can control something without condoning it. Sinful actions are sinful actions. And God can still be a holy and just and righteous God, even if at a certain point in history He doesn't outright forbid something that falls short of His standard. So so if polygamy is not God's standard, and if we've got a reason to still believe that God is good and holy and trustworthy and just, even if He were to condone something that fell short of His standard, with all that going on, what is God's design for marriage? What does He do? He creates Eve from the body of Adam to be His wife. He doesn't create Eve and Jennifer for this first marriage to Adam. He doesn't say, look, you're wives. He says, look, a wife. That's the original Design, the idea of marriage from the beginning is one man and one woman committed to each other for life with sacrificial love towards one another being the root of why they're together. But that design is distorted as mankind rebels against God and chooses to go their own way in Genesis 3. The practice of polygamy is introduced in Genesis chapter 4, verse 19 with a man named Lamech a man who notably brags about how sinful and rebellious he is. He feels no conviction about falling short of God's standard. Instead, he flaunts and displays it, trying to point out that he is not scared of God, he has no fear, and he chooses to go against God's design and to marry multiple women at the same time. That's the first kind of guy to do this. Later, we see in Genesis 12 through 23 with the story of Abraham that because of a lack of faith in God's promises, Abram's wife Sarah gives Hagar, her servant, to marry her husband Abraham because she cannot have children and she thinks that Hagar could have children children and pass on the family name. Now, how does that end up? Jealousy, anger, bitterness, and Sarah demanding Abraham to send Hagar, his other wife, and his son Ishmael away. Abraham's known throughout the Bible as a man of faith, one whose faith we're even called to emulate, but he was admittedly an imperfect man, and his faith grew over time as God tested and matured him, and all that polygamy brought him in his life was heartache. He has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, and Jacob famously goes and falls in love with someone and wants to 
work to earn the bride price to pay to her father. So he works for his uncle Laban for seven years in order to marry his daughter Rachel. But then Laban, who's a trickster, somehow tricks him into instead going to bed with his other daughter Leah. And then he wakes up and realizes what's going on. By the way, the Bible is not rated G. Uh, but, but that happens, and then he has to work for another seven years to earn Rachel's hand in marriage. So all of a sudden, we got sister wives going on, like on TLC. And in addition to those two wives, each of them, in order to have more children, also have their, their maidservants marry them. So Jacob is, it has four wives now. And what does that produce? Obviously a stable home environment, right? No. What it produces is chaos. What it produces is drama, jealousy, broken heartedness, favoritism, and children who live their lives with rivalries against one another. Fast forward to 1 Samuel, and we are introduced to a young woman who is barren whose name is Hannah. She is one of two wives of a man named Elkanah. She is barren and cannot have children. She constantly feels less than worthy. She constantly feels like she's being treated with contempt by her sister wife, and things do not work out well in that situation. And yet, even in that brokenness, God decides to to, to, to give her womb life so that Samuel can be raised up and lead Israel. Deuteronomy 17 is the rules that God gives in His law for future kings in Israel. What does God say? He says the kings, the people who have the most money, the people who the most easily can financially provide for multiple wives and a big family are forbidden from the practice of polygamy. So what do they do? Naturally, they ignore God's command because of their hard-heartedness and they do what they want. Saul, the first king in 1 Samuel 8, has multiple wives. When he dies, David takes the throne and David inherits the wives that Saul had because he's the new king. Now David's the one who is a man after God's own heart, right? David's a man who God approved of. So how can David who engages in the practice of polygamy, be approved of by God with this kind of public sin in his life. Well, David, like Abraham, was an imperfect man. David inherited Saul's lives. That doesn't necessarily mean that he acted as a husband to them. It might have merely meant that he protected for and provided for them. But during his life, he did marry Saul's daughter, Michael. And then he took Nabal, Nabal's wife, Abigail, as a wife whenever her husband died. And then most famously, he committed adultery with and then later married Bathsheba. So even if all those wives he inherited from Saul, he didn't act as a husband to, he still was involved in polygamy. If you read the text carefully, most of the references to David being a man after God's own heart happened before his ascension to the throne when the practice of polygamy began in his life. And if you read the story of First and Second Samuel as one big picture, what happens in his life after adultery and polygamy are introduced? Everything falls apart and it becomes an extremely sad story that is filled with rebellious children, rape, murder, and heartache. David's son Solomon follows in the footsteps of Saul and David famously having over a thousand wives and concubines combined, which results in what? The foreign wives who he married, who worshipped other gods, turned his heart away from the one true God in order to worship idols. 
And then as God's leader, he leads Israel away from God, which eventually splits the kingdom in two and leads to Israel not dwelling in the promised land anymore, going into exile and standing in opposition to God. Why point out all of these stories of men that God used in history who practiced polygamy? To point out this reality, that polygamy was never God's design. It never worked well. It always caused drama and division and heartache and idolatry. So even if it's possible that God in Exodus 21 is somehow legislating this instead of forbidding it, it's clear from what all the Scripture teaches that He does not endorse or condone polygamy. He has standards for marriage. Now why does this matter? You might be thinking... I'm not really tempted to marry somebody else. i got my hands full, as is, right? Because in our day, people who profess to follow Christ are trying to redefine marriage. And in order for us to understand what marriage is about in its original design, we have to make sense of every component of it and every way throughout history that people have strayed from it and what the scriptures speak into it. So what God's doing here is he's restraining Israel from being as evil as they could be so that they will survive long enough for the promised Messiah to come from them who will bring true forgiveness and redemption and transform hearts so that people can truly follow God and live within relationships and marriages that bring honor and glory to Him. But you still might ask, even after all this discussion about these weird things like polygamy and arranged marriage, Nick... Tomorrow's Monday, and i got to go to work, and i got to take care of my family, and i got to go to school. That's an interesting lesson. But how is this relevant to me? And that leads to our last point, that Christ offers lasting care and unrivaled devotion to His bride. Christ offers lasting care and unrivaled devotion to His bride. In the book of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve and He brings them together, calling them to the covenant love of marriage. But thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 5, says to Christian husbands and Christian wives, that the idea of marriage that God created in the beginning was not only about forming new families. It was not only about reproduction. It was not only about safety and security and building families. But instead, it was intentionally created by God to be a picture of a much greater reality. It was intentionally created by God to be a picture of the future relationship between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church for whom He sacrifices His life. Paul says, husbands, you're supposed to lead in your family. And you're not supposed to lead by saying, make me a sandwich. Serve me. 
You're supposed to lead, he says, by modeling and mimicking what Jesus did for his bride, sacrificially laying down your life, because it's not all about you. And he says, wives, Christian wives, you're supposed to joyfully follow the loving leadership that your husband is providing, just like the church who was saved and redeemed by Jesus joyfully follows the loving leadership and headship of their husband. He says that, and in the midst of giving those commands for sacrificial love and joyful submission, Jesus is point, Paul is pointing the Christians to what marriage has always been about. And if you're a careful studier of God's Word, then you know that the Bible ends with what? The Bible ends with what? Where does it culminate? Where's the climax come? At something that Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Apostle John is given a vision of the future. And this is what he says, Revelation 19. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And they were crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice. Let us exalt. Let us give Him the glory. Why? Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready for her groom. It was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What does that mean? It means that the conclusion of the Bible, the end game, the climax of the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is that a spiritually sinful and adulterous people are forgiven and are made pure and enter into what? An eternal marriage covenant with their Savior and King, Jesus Christ, who laid down His life for His bride and they come together finally at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is an amazing thing to think about. That is a day that when we reflect on it, it should make us marvel. We should be blown away by that more than we are by a Crimson Tide touchdown in the next few weeks. We should be blown away by that than how excited we get about a new job promotion or a fun Friday night. Because we're talking about something that lasts forever. It's not momentary. It's not temporary. It is eternal. It should blow our minds when we consider that reality is true. And one day it will be our reality if we know Christ. What are we saying? Like a bride waiting for her groom, will be the church ready for you. And when you read these random, obscure passages from Exodus, when you show up to church and you think, why in the world can't we just pick something more practical? Then I want to point your attention to this reality. That what's so amazing about these strange rituals like arranged marriages found in the Bible is that they point us to God's eternal design. How? Because what's the story of the Bible? It's the story 
of God the Father in eternity past, arranging a marriage, arranging an eternal covenant of sacrificial love and joyful submission. It's a story of God the Father before the foundations of the world, arranging a marriage between who? His one and only Son and a bride who is in need of redemption and forgiveness and protection and security and love. And that that arranged marriage that God planned and arranged involved a payment just like the bride price that was required in Exodus 21. But in God's plan, in the story of the gospel, that bride price was not a lump sum of money or a plot of land. Instead, that bride price that was offered was the shedding of perfect, innocent, spotless blood. That bride price instead truly atoned for the sin of the bride and qualified her to be counted as pure and spotless to prepare her for her future wedding day where she would be united forever with her faithful husband who laid down his life for her at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That bride price is able to turn the filthy rags of unrighteousness into purity and perfection. The bride price of dark red Galilean blood would make a bride whose sin was as crimson become as white and as pure as snow. When we consider the magnitude and the beauty and the glory of that reality, then all of a sudden, this seemingly backwards idea of arranged marriages and bride prices doesn't sound quite so bad anymore, does it? Because friends, our salvation, our forgiveness, our holiness, our purpose, our redemption, our inheritance, our future, our hope, and our joy are because of an arranged marriage and a bride price. Hallelujah. And friends, what we need is forgiveness. What we need is Forgiveness. We need God to redeem and pick up our brokenness. We need Him to take the ashes of our life and create a beautiful masterpiece out of it. Like a young woman in ancient Israel, we need protection as those who are spiritually vulnerable and weak. And for us to find that needed spiritual protection and security and love that we all need as fallen sinners, we must not look to our good works to earn God's favor. We must not look to our worth and value by boosting our self-esteem. We must not look to the things of this world that always over-promises and under-delivers, but we must lift our gaze above those things to the bride price of Jesus' shed blood, to the arranged marriage of our union with Him in the future, and to the future glory of the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, then this morning as the gospel of Jesus is offered to you, there is a proposal for marriage being offered. And it's being offered by one who has proven His eternal love for you. It is one 
who doesn't just say he'll never leave, but one who will never leave or forsake you. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you've never believed in Him and repented of your sin and surrendered to Him as Lord, that eternal marriage covenant can begin today, but it begins with you accepting the proposal and the offer of grace that He's given. And if you're here this morning and you know Him and you've been redeemed by the blood, then I pray that you will join me in marveling at the amazing grace that Jesus gives, the amazing hope that Jesus provides, and the amazing joy that truly satisfied. All of those things are provided us because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And it's always been about Jesus. And if you have Jesus, then you have all that you need. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy. I thank you this morning, Lord, that in our brokenness you make a way of redemption and salvation. I thank you, God, that in in my brokenness and sin, Lord, I didn't deserve grace. And yet, Lord, because of what Jesus has done for me, because of the blood that He shed for me, because of the wrath that He absorbed, that I deserve for me in my place, God, that, that You, God, save me. God, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who doesn't know You, If there's anyone here this morning who is running after the things of this world and is looking for hope and joy and peace and satisfaction in things that do not satisfy. If there's anyone here who's putting their hope in their circumstances or in a person and they feel constantly let down, and they feel constantly vulnerable, and they feel constantly used. God, I pray that if if anyone is like that, and they're in that spot, Lord, that they will see and savor the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, and that they will know that when everyone else lets you down, Jesus won't. When everyone else abandons and forsakes you, Jesus will stay. And we know that He will, not just because He says that He will, But we know that He will stay with us and sustain us to the end because while He was hanging on the cross and had the ability to get down, He stayed. He proved His love by shedding His blood to show His grace to a people who don't deserve it. God, if anyone here needs that kind of a Savior, needs that kind of a Lord, then I pray that you now will work in them so they will fall before you, crying out to you desperately, Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. God, help us to never lose the wonder and the marvel of the gospel. Help us to not be satisfied with the temporary things of this world. We can be a king. We can have land and money and success. But if we don't have you, then we're wasting our lives. God, help us 
to trust in You, lean on You, and to be satisfied in You, even if we don't have anything else. God, I pray that as we sing, as we worship, that You will draw our hearts to You, and that You will guide us to respond as Your Spirit leads. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.